Father, we thank you for the opportunity to be together. I know on this Wednesday night at this time, uh, uh, we haven't done that in a month or so, but I'm thankful to be back. I'm thankful to be here. And just, just the fact that we're here tonight is a testimony. Having made it through this Christmas season, this December and, and everything else, it's just a testimony of your kindness that you've brought us back together. And so, God, we thank, we're thankful for, uh, for that. And so, Father, um, we come tonight just giving you praise and, and really just thanking you for a great year that we had last year, all that you did, all that, you've, all that you are doing in the life of our church. God, I'm just blessed by it, evidenced by Pastor Nathan coming to work here and to help us as we seek to do more for the advancement of the gospel and the kingdom, as we seek to not only help people encounter you, to know you are equipped for uh, the task of serving you, Father, but as we seek to engage and establish the church, God, we're just thankful for him coming in and stepping in and filling in some roles for us and leading us in so many ways there. So thankful for that, for his family, help their transition here to be a healthy one and a good one as they move toward this way. God, I'm thankful for, for Brother James as he is leading and serving in ministry in that role. I just want to, as a church, for us to pray for him, to encourage him, and just uh, thankful for his willingness to serve in that way. And we pray for a blessing in that ministry, that he's an encouragement to all that he ministers to. Thank you, Lord, for his heart toward that. God, I thank you for the gospel of Jesus Christ, because as we move into a new year, uh, as we face a future always of uncertainty, and there seems to be so much more uncertainty now than ever before. God, I'm thankful that tonight we can stand here, we can gather together with one thing that is for sure, and that is that you are on the throne and you are in control. And that one thing, God, that one certainty that we hold on to makes everything else, makes everything else at peace. And so, God, we ask now that you would encourage us tonight through your word, strengthen us for the task that you have for us in this new year, and that, God, we would be even more productive by your grace as we seek to reach more people in our community and in the nations for the gospel's sake. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. I do want to mention two things. My goodness, uh, two more things. One, we'll start in... Um, Acts this coming week. We'll jump back in to right where we left off and we'll look at that through these next few months. And really as we think about what God is doing here, we, we think about that first part of we looked at how the Lord builds his church and, and, and he's encountering that. Now we'll see how God not only builds his church, but he, in building it, he equips his church for the tasks that it is before it. And we'll see that laid out in this next section of the book of Acts. And by a matter of prayer, um, and we'll close out with this. Pastor Stephen is not in our country right now. Miss Debbie is. Hey, Debbie, wave over there, Debbie. She's fine. Um, but Pastor Stephen is in South Asia kind of making a tour and working with our partners. And we got a good update from him. We want to continue to pray for him as he'll be there for the next week or so. And so really thankful for his work going on there. We need to lift him up. Exodus chapter 18 is really a good place for us to pick up tonight. Um, we have looked at really the first 17 chapters of the book of Exodus has been a whirlwind of activity. I mean, you start out picking up in Exodus. And remember, Exodus is some 400 years after Genesis closes out. But it picks up where Genesis left off in the sense that Israel had moved itself to Egypt. And it moved there, remember, in Joseph's day, getting food because there was a great famine. And Joseph, by, by God's own uh, sovereignty, had placed Joseph in charge so the people could be there and protected and have food. And now you find them 400 years later in Egypt. But in Egypt, the new king, the Pharaoh, did not know Joseph and did not know his God. And so you begin to see the oppression or the persecution now, remember also that as we've laid out this study in the Old Testament, there's a couple things that, that I, I have always kind of mentioned for you. One, the thesis of all of God's word, I believe, is Genesis 3.15. 
Genesis 3.15 runs that thesis of the fact that there in the garden, when sin entered in, the Lord said to the serpent, when he, when he addressed the serpent after the serpent had tempted Adam and Eve and they had fallen in sin, he said, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, you shall bruise his heel. So in other words, the serpent who had disturbed the great peace of God, God has said there's going to be a battle that is raging between your offspring and the offspring of the woman. And in the end, the serpent crusher will come and will crush you and end your reign, basically. And so what we find as we look through Scripture is we're longing and we're looking for that serpent crusher. Who will it be? Who is qualified? Who can do this? And so every step of the statement or the text of the Old Testament is painting that picture of the serpent crusher that will come. And so we get different scenes of it. Some of that is seen in the flood and how God is going to judge, but he's going to also redeem. And then we, we see... I believe the outline of the Old Testament comes to light in the promises that are given to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 where he promises Abraham, he says, I'm going to make you a great nation, I'm going to give you a land, and I'm going to bless those who bless those bless you and curse those who curse you. I'm going to bless you. And so as we've laid out the Old Testament, what we saw in the book of Genesis is how God fulfilled his promise or is fulfilling his promise to Abraham by creating a great nation from him. So from Abraham, you have the promised son, which is Isaac. We went through that whole story. And then from Isaac, you have Jacob and Esau. When we saw how Jacob was the one that the promise was going through, we went through that whole story. I don't want to rehash it tonight. You should be going through it soon again in your Bible reading plan for the year. And then you get to, uh, from Jacob, then you have 12 sons who are born from him that become the 12 tribes of Israel that are in place. And they move off to Egypt. And while they're in Egypt, Exodus chapter 1 tells us that Israel had become a great nation. It literally says they had become great. And so in some sense, that's the first section of the outline. Here's how from Abraham, God created Israel. Here's how they became and now we're moving to that second section of the outline. He's going to give them a land. He's going to dwell with them in a land. And so now we're starting to see how God goes to Egypt. And while they're in Egypt, the Pharaoh begins to persecute and oppress them and places them in slavery, even killing their children because they become so great. And so you see how they cry out to God. God hears their cries, and now he's going to bring them out of Egypt to a land that he has promised them. And that's what we're going to see in Exodus. That's what we'll see in Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, into Joshua, right? We'll see how he's going to, he's going to bring them into the promised land where he will dwell with his people. And so we begin that, and that's what we see in Exodus. God says, I'm going to deliver you. So he raises up a deliverer, Moses. And again, Exodus just becomes action after action. Moses is raised up. He's thrown up. He's thrown into the, the river by his mother to protect him instead of killing him. His sister watches over him. Pharaoh's daughter finds him. Pharaoh's daughter says we need to keep him. They keep him. His points his sister to watch over him and protect Y'all got that whole story, right? Y'all know that better than me. Y'all remember the flannel graphs growing up and stuff like that. And so you have all of that coming through. And then Moses is raised up in Pharaoh's household, yet he still identifies with the Hebrews in some ways in this, in this, in this way. And that comes out whenever he sees one of the Hebrews being mistreated by an Egyptian. And he goes over and he, he defends that Hebrew, but he does so in a way where he kills the Egyptian. The Hebrews say, are you to be judge over us and rule over us? So Moses recognizes he's in trouble. So he flees to Midian. He finds himself in Midian for 40 years where he is put in charge of a man named Jethro. He's not the Jethro you're thinking of. You're thinking of another Jethro. His last name was Bodine. And he swam in the cement pond. And some of y'all may not be know, know what I'm talking about. But this was Jethro in Midian. And there he's put in charge of Jethro's flocks. He marries one of Jethro's daughters. But in the middle of that, 
God shows up to Moses and he speaks to him through a bush that is burning and not consumed. And he says, Moses, I'm going to tell you who I am by giving you my name. And I'm going to tell you what I'm going to do. I am Yahweh. I am who I am. And I am going to deliver my people. I have heard their cries and it is time and I'm sending you. Moses steps back and says, it's not me. Don't, don't send me. I'm not qualified. God works through all of that by showing him how not only are you not qualified, you're right, but I'm qualified and I'm going to qualify you, Moses, and equip you for what you need. He does that. Moses goes back through Moses and his, his leading in this and God speaking through Moses and then Moses speaking through Aaron. Yeah, it gets a little complicated right there, but y'all know, y'all remember. Through all of that, God dismantles the gods of Egypt through the, through the 10 plagues, if you remember, and basically demonstrates everything you're trusting in Egypt is futile and nothing compared to me. Through all of this, all the way down to the Passover and the beautiful, beautiful imagery of God's provision for a Passover lamb, through all of this, we find the people finally delivered. Moses takes them out thinking it may be done, but it's not. Pharaoh, even though he lets them go, goes after them. Finally, God completes his deliverance by parting the Red Sea in front of them. They cross through on dry land. Y'all get what I'm saying? When they get to the other side, Pharaoh's army's coming in, the waters crash back down, and they are defeated. And at that moment, it almost seems like Moses turns and he begins to sing, our God is a warrior. He fights for his people. And he rejoices because God had delivered them. They start in through the wilderness, and you would think their walk through the wilderness with their head held high, excited about everything, but the Israelites begin to do what? Complain. Y'all know. And so the Israelites begin to complain. They're fussing about it, but in every step, God shows that he's going to protect them. In every step, he shows he'll provide for them. In every step, he's going to lead them. He does so by a pillar of fire by night and a pillar of cloud by day that guides them. He does so by showing, I'm not leaving you out here to die by not eating. I will provide food for you that will be on the ground every single morning. All you got to do is pick it up and you can eat that manna that is provided from heaven. I'm going to provide water from you in the middle of the desert because all you got to do is look to this rock that, 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 that I put there, then water will come from that walk, rock. That's what we ended on last time. Now, I'm going through all of that for two reasons. One, to remind you, just a quick recap. That was a quick recap. To remind you of where we were as we gather back together here in January. What we've talked about, where we've come through. God has provided, he's delivered his people, he's provided for his people, he's doing everything needed, and he's leading his people to the promised land. That's that, reminding you where we came from. I'm doing it also because of our passage tonight. Because Exodus chapter 18 is somewhat of a hinge passage, if you will. After all the excitement that has gone on in Exodus, I'm talking about one thing right after another. I'm talking about a whole bunch of gnats and a whole bunch of frogs and a whole, I mean, y'all remember all of that stuff that's going on. After all of that excitement, 18 is a little peace, respite, if you will. 18 comes as a little respite in the day. Y'all remember, I was thinking about this the other day, thinking about Jethro Bodine. Y'all know Jethro Bodine, right? The old sitcoms, y'all remember when you watched, when I, I grew up on sitcoms. Sitcoms were where it was at. Y'all know the situation comedies that were 30 minutes long. I can sing the entire opening to different strokes right now. It may have been years, but the world don't move to the beat of just one drum. You know what I'm saying? Facts of life, I got all of that one. Take the good, you take the bad, take them both, and there you have the facts of life. Y'all remember the facts of life? Family ties, they didn't, have any, they didn't have any words with family ties. It's just music. That's boring. You had all of these. And if you remember when they did the sitcoms, you would have one sitcom in every season where they all talked about the memories of the season. Y'all remember? And they had the flashbacks. You remember when that happened? And they go and flash back to a scene earlier in the scene. Y'all remember this? Or am I the only one? So you had this. Where they had, that's kind of what we have here in chapter 18. 
We have been through all of this, and now they're going to sit back, and Jethro shows up. So if we read this passage, we see that Jethro, the priest of Midian, Midian, Moses' father-in-law, heard all that God had done for Moses and for Israel and his people and how the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. So Jethro, the word, had been going through the land, not just in Egypt, but this word had been passed around all through that even in Midian, he had heard about what God had done. So Jethro heard about this. And now Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, had taken Zipporah, Moses' wife, after he had sent her home. Now what happens here, I believe, is that Moses sees as he's heading in. Y'all remember there was that real weird scene about the blood and the bridegroom. We, we went through that. I'm not going through it again because it's weird. And it's that real different kind of scene there about what happened with Zipporah and Moses on the way. And it seems like Moses sends her home, not as in a sense of divorce, but as a sense of protection. This is, I'm going to Egypt. I'm not sure what's going to happen. I'm a Hebrew. Those are the Hebrews. You're not. You stay here and let's see. And so now, having heard that Moses has been delivered out of Egypt, Jethro says it's time for us to go meet him. So he brings his wife, Zipporah, and the two boys, and he comes to find Moses. And that's what we have happening here. He comes alone, Moses' wife, Zipporah, after he had sent her home, along with her two sons. The name of the one was, and, and there's a reason why they give these two names, Gershom, for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. That's what Gershom means. It sounds like the Hebrew word for sojourner. And the name of Eleazar, for he said, the God of my father was my help and delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. Now, those two names summarize Moses' life. And both of those, his sons, kind of become a summary of what's going on in the book of Exodus in Moses' life. One, he was a sojourner and a stranger in a foreign land. And two, God has delivered him and brought him out. God is his help. And so even in the names, that's why I believe it tells us in the text what those names mean. These names even are testimonies for Moses as he has these two sons. These names are testimonies of God's faithfulness to help him and deliver him. So Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, came with his sons and his wife to Moses in the wilderness where he was encamped at the mountain of God. And when he sent word to Moses, I, your father-in-law Jethro, am coming to you with your wife and her two sons with her. Moses went out to meet his father-in-law and bowed down and kissed him. Now, there's a reason why that's here. We're going to see the centrality of Jethro in this passage. I like to believe that Moses didn't just kiss his father-in-law, but he had a kiss for his wife too. Let's go ahead and put that in there because I can't imagine. Um, kissed him and they asked each other of their welfare they exchanged the pleasantries if you will and then they went in the tent which is a testimony to it's time to talk right they go in the tent to converse together they exchange the pleasantries now let's go into the tent and let's talk and what i'm sure is happening is jethro had heard what is going on now moses is going to tell him and that's what the text tells us. In fact, this word that's translated in my text, then Moses told, is the same word for to declare or to proclaim. In other words, they go in the tent and Moses declares or proclaims to his father-in-law all that the Lord had done. So in that essence, the first half of this chapter is summarizing all that God had done for them. It's looking back to the first part of Exodus. That's what I mean by it's going to be a hinge for us. It's a summary. So you're kind of taking this moment for Moses to step in. Let me tell you, father-in-law, everything that happened. And can you imagine that conversation? It 
took me 15 minutes almost just to kind of quickly run through the highlights. I didn't touch it all. Could you imagine the conversation of saying, I was out in the, in, in the field, as you know, and that bush started burning. When I got to Pharaoh, I told him all these things and, and my, my, my rod turned to a serpent. And then he had some guys and their staffs turned to serpents and my serpent ate their serpents. I mean, you can't leave out details like that, right? And he's telling everything that he's done. Jethro, this happened and this happened, and he's going through the whole process. So as I went through that, that's kind of what you would get here for what he's telling Jethro. Let me tell you all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake, for the hardship that had come upon them, in the way and how the Lord had delivered them. And Jethro rejoiced for all the good that the Lord had done to Israel in that he had delivered them out of the land of the Egyptians. What I'm saying tonight is Moses is declaring, he's declaring to Jethro at this time what I believe is gospel, the good news. He's declaring the good news to Jethro. That's what he means when he says, let me tell you all that the Lord has done. And what is it that the Lord has done? Four times in our just a few short verses here, the verb for to deliver or to rescue or to save is used. In other words, let me tell you what the Lord has done. Jethro said, blessed be the Lord who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians, out of the hand of Pharaoh, and delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods. In other words, Moses relates how the Lord has delivered his people. How he is faithful to do everything he's promised to do. How he saved them from Egypt. How he saved them out of slavery. How he saved them out of that bondage and oppression. And he has fulfilled his promises. The Lord has done it all. Look at what the Lord has done. And when Jethro hears it, Jethro's response is, yes. And notice what Jethro says. I have this underline. I got a lot of stuff underlined in my Bible. I got this underlined too. He says, now I know that the Lord is greater than all the gods. The theme of Exodus from the very start of God introducing himself to Moses has been what? I'm going to make myself known. The Lord has said over and over again, Pharaoh will know me. Remember, whenever Moses went to Pharaoh the first time, Pharaoh says, I do not know the Lord. And the Lord says, you're going to know me. And how does the Lord let Pharaoh know who he is? It's through those plagues and demonstrating his power. God is saying, not only is my people going to know me, Pharaoh's going to know me. And here you're seeing it's not only Pharaoh's going to know me, but the nations are going to know me. Even the priests of Midian, Jethro, he now knows. Through what God has done through his actions, the world has come to know he is God. He is Lord over all. This theme this theme of the Lord is making himself known is now coming to fruition when this Jethro, a priest of Midian, stands here in the tent or sits in the tent with Moses and says, I know now that the Lord is greater than all the gods. I like to think that there may have been some pre-work done in what's going on here with Midian. It tells us, I mean with Jethro, it tells us at the beginning of chapter 18, he's a priest of Midian. I'm not sure what that means. What I am sure of, he's not a priest of the Lord God Almighty, right? And so what I think is happening here, while he has heard about what happened with Moses, when Moses speaks that gospel, that statement to him of, let me tell you what the Lord has done. He has delivered his people. Jethro here says, that's the true God. There's a conversion in some way taking place. Jethro is saying, now I know that's him. Now I know the Lord. I know he's greater. And when he says he's greater than all the other gods, he's a priest of Midian. And he's saying he's greater than all. So here we see how Moses is speaking the gospel. And what is the response? First of all, what does Moses say? Notice in Moses' testimony here, it shouldn't be set aside 
that Moses' testimony is all about God. Moses doesn't seemingly say, let me tell you what I did. I threw down my thing and the Lord said, I'll take that. I had a good idea here. It tells us that Moses says, here is what the Lord has done. What the Lord has done. His testimony is not about what he has done and the Lord kind of bolstered him. His testimony is God did it all. I want to say to you that in your own testimony about your faith in salvation, you need to learn this from Moses. Is that if you are a child of God tonight, it is because God has saved you, you haven't saved yourself. Right? And so if your testimony begins with, I did this, then you need to step back and go, no, let me reevaluate. God did this. And that's the testimony of Moses. God is on the throne. I'm not. God is in control. I'm not. God has accomplished the salvation of his people by delivering them. I didn't. He did it. It's all him. I've just been a tool in his hand. I've just been a messenger of his truth. That's it. God saved them. God saved me. God delivered us. Moses' testimony is all about God and what he has done. And here, with giving this gospel, telling the story of God's saving acts of redemption in the life of Israel, we see the response of Jethro. He first says, now I know. He recognizes a faith of joy. He comes up and he rejoices. He says, now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods because in this affair they dealt arrogantly with the people and Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and sacrifices to God and Aaron came with all the elders and ate bread and Moses' father-in-law before God. Jethro responds, responds with rejoicing as it says in verse 9. He's responding means he receives he recognizes with faith and joy that it is the work of God and what God has accomplished in saving his people. If we, we talk about the gospel quite often here, and we have what we lay out as our four points of the gospel, right? Uh, God is holy, man is sinful, Christ is Savior, and we must respond to that. And so if we can pull this out, when I say he speaks the gospel, what's happening here is that Moses is telling of God's saving works. Well, that is what the gospel is. The gospel, in essence, as 1 Corinthians 15, is telling us that Jesus came and died for us to save us from our sins, to deliver us from our oppression and slavery and bondage of sin and death. He came to save us. And so when we respond to that, how do we respond? We can see some of that in Jethro. He recognizes with joy that it is God who saves, not himself. That Jethro doesn't look to somebody else. He doesn't give credit to anybody else. It is God who saves. He recognizes with joy and faith that it is the work of God. And in that, he knows the truth about God. He knows what God has done. Remember, we have two parts to, to, to what we need to know when it comes to salvation. We need to know who God is and what he has done. Those are the two parts. We think about that in Romans 10, right, and where he says, uh, if you confess him with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. So you have to know what we call the person and work of Jesus Christ to be saved. Who he is and what he's done. He is Lord and he has saved us from our sins, and the resurrection is testimony that everything he did and said is true. His death was sufficient enough. And so we know who he is and what he's done. So in responding, we receive that news with joy and celebrate the knowledge of who God is and what he's done. And we see that with Jethro. Jethro says, I now know it's the Lord. I know him, and I know him because I know who he is and I know what his works are. I know what he's done. We know that. But not only that, you celebrate that. He rejoiced. And what does Jethro do? When he knows the Lord is there, he receives and recognizes by faith and joy of what God has done. He knows about him. He celebrates that faith and knowledge in worship and communion with the saints. What does he do? He says, let's worship him. 
Let's sacrifice and worship him. If he's going to recognize him as God, then he's going to worship him. That's what you do when you have the one true God there. He turns his worship toward him, and he gathers together others that know who God is and what he's done, and they celebrate together before God. What I mean simply is we just think about this. If you're going to receive the Lord today as your Savior, then you are recognizing by faith and joy of who he is and knowing what he has done for you. You receive that knowledge with joy, and your response is always going to be to worship him and get together with other believers to worship him. That's going to be the response. We see that even here with Jethro. In, in, in this, I love how this language lays out as he lays out this communion and worship with God's people. This ties, because we to, to get through this chapter, we'll hurry here, but this ties us directly to a passage in the New Testament, I believe. Turn with me, if you can, to 1 Peter. I didn't really, uh, to be perfectly honest, and I think I told Pastor Jeremy this today, I didn't really recognize this as Exodus language, but I believe this is exactly Exodus language in 1 Peter chapter 2. I don't want to jump the gun. It's not in our chapter tonight. We'll get to it next week. But in, in, in ex, don't turn back. Well, y'all know, y'all remember the old trick, right? The old seminary trick where you put your finger here and then you flip over to here and you keep your thumb like that and you got both places. You can do that. But if you, if you look back in 19, he says, the Lord speaks and he says, now therefore, uh, um, Make sure I get this right. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, this is verse 5, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. You shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. There are These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So he said, you're my precious possession and you're a kingdom of priests, right? Well, look to 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. Peter is writing to these who believe by faith, even though they're exiled away, but they are still a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. That, my friends, is Exodus right there. That's all Exodus language. And what Peter is saying is that if you're a child of God today, then you are here because God has called you out of the kingdom of darkness, like in Egypt, and into his marvelous light, the kingdom of God, right? He's called you out of that kingdom, and he has made you his own. You are a royal possession to him. You are precious, a priest before him. You are, and he has done that for what reason? So you may proclaim his excellencies, it says. That's all right there in chapter 18. It's all right there. Moses takes his father-in-law into the tent and he just simply tells him what God has done. Let me tell you of the excellencies of God. He called us out of Egypt and he's taken us to the promised land. He's provided for us in every way. He's protecting us. He's guiding us. He's doing, let me tell you of the excellencies of God. If you're a child of God today, it's because you're a precious possession to him. And he has called you out of darkness into his light so that you may proclaim his excellencies to others. That's all Exodus language applying to us today as God's people. Now, you get to that section, verse 12, in chapter, back to chapter 18, and then you hinge to the next section by that little phrase, the next day. This chapter comes in two sections, right? And so the first section is rehashing what happened before of the excellencies of God in delivering his people. The next section is going to be looking to what's happening or what's coming next. It's a hinge passage. The first section is telling us how God is Savior of Israel. The next section is going to tell us how he is Lord or King over Israel. And now that's going to push us into the next. Because remember... God didn't save his people to leave them. He saved them so he can be with them. 
And so he wants to dwell with his people. But in order for an unholy people to dwell with a holy God, then there must be something that happens. What can qualify unholy people to dwell with a holy God? They must follow after God's law and God's rules. And so here we look to the next half of 18, which is going to propel us to the next part of Exodus. Because Jethro has just heard the excellencies of God. He knows the Lord, and now he's going to see some of that in action. The next day, Moses sat to judge the people, and the people stood around Moses from morning till evening. When Moses' father-in-law saw all that he was doing for the people, he said, What is it that you are doing for the people? Why do you sit alone and the people stand around you from morning till evening? And Moses said to his father-in-law, because the people come to me to inquire of God. Moses is the one who's led them out. Moses is the one who talked to the Lord in the burning bush, who the Lord's met with over and over again. So the people are trying to learn how to live with one another. How do we handle some disputes that are among us? How do we handle some issues that are going on? Could you imagine? We already know this is a whole mess of people coming. And so now it's on Moses to be that one who tells them God's law and God's rules. And so Moses says, that's what I'm doing. I'm trying to explain to them how God wants them to live amongst each other here. I'm trying to explain to them how that goes. Because the people came to him to inquire of God. When they had a dispute, they come to me and I decide between one person or another. I make them know the statutes of God and his laws. Moses is saying God rules us. God is in control. So I've got to be the one that helps people see and know what God is saying and what God wants you to do, right? And so Moses said, that's my role. That's my responsibility. And so when Moses' father-in-law then heard Moses say this, he says to him, what you are doing is stupid. I mean, he didn't say that. I was just seeing if y'all would giggle. He says it's not good. What you are doing is not good. You and the people with you will certainly wear yourselves out. For the thing is too heavy for you. You're not able to do it alone. Could you imagine? We've talked about 600,000 men traveling here, much less the others with them. And Moses is by himself to be the one judge, to be the one guy to tell them what God wants them to do and how God wants them to handle situations. Jethro comes in with a little bit of sense. And now Moses, Moses is in his 80s. He's an octogenarian. He's one of those guys that James Beard will be ministering to on the weekends. And his father-in-law has got to be a lot older, right? Probably has a gray beard, which most old people have. And so in doing that, here is the older man looking at him and says, you can't carry on like this. You can't do this. You can't continue in this way. Now obey my voice. I will give you advice and God be with you. You shall represent the people before God and bring their cares to God, their cases to God. And you shall warn them about the statutes and the laws and make them know the way in which they must walk and what they must do. Moreover, look for able men from all the people, men who fear God, who are trustworthy and hate a bribe, and place such men over the people as chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens. And let them judge the people at all times. Every great matter they shall bring to you. But any small matter they shall decide themselves. So it will be easier for you and they will bear the burden with you. If you do this, God will direct you and you will be able to endure. And all the people also will go to their place in peace. Jethro gives his advice. And his advice is, yes. God rules the people. It is God that we're looking for. It is God that we're seeking guidance from. It is God that determines what we do and how we do it. Yes. But in that responsibility then, Moses, you've got to teach the people God, but you can't do that by yourself. So you need to train up able and trustworthy men to lead out in taking care of this, to lead out in giving God's judgment and Statements, rules. So here Jethro's advice to Moses is, even though I believe Moses has the best of intentions, but his best intentions are inadequate for the task. 
You may think you can do it all, Moses, and you're not, I don't think Moses is hoarding leadership here. I don't think Moses thinks that he's the only one capable. I don't think Moses thinks that he can, that he's, that he's the only one that can possibly fulfill this role. I think Moses is in a spot where he just believes that's his responsibility and he doesn't know much better at this point. And Jethro comes along to say, hey man, you can't do this by yourself. There's no way. In this, we find a great principle throughout Scripture that multiplication is what we should be after in church ministry. That discipleship is raising up someone else because none of us can do this alone. None of us can. In fact, what's real, what's real is that God has chosen to use us. He doesn't need us. And so you pull Moses out of this equation, he can raise up another Moses. It's not dependent just on Moses in this sense. It's God who rules and reigns and who's in charge. And he chooses to use us underneath him, if you will, to guide and direct and lead. And so we must recognize that we can't carry this burden. Whatever our best intentions are, you can't carry things by yourself. Partnership, working together, multiplication, that's a vital part of Christian work and ministry. Training up somebody else. The nature of discipleship runs not just in Matthew 28, but throughout the scripture. And you see it even here, that raising up, training, being a part, teaching others to do these things is what we are to do. Here, Jethro gives that advice. Recognizing for Moses to get him to recognize, man, you got your limits. And you can burn hot, but you'll burn fast. And if you burn fast, then you'll burn out. And when you burn out, you are no use to these people anymore. That the work you got to do has got to be shouldered by others. Moses maybe should have known this before. Because remember, he tried to hold up his arms there for a while, and he couldn't do that by himself either. And here, that's only displayed in the advice of Jethro. You can't do this alone. You've got to train up others. Of course, that's our desire here at Taylor's to recognize that same thing. There's not one person, one man, one anybody in our church, in the life of our church that can do the work that God has called us to do by himself or herself. And so our effort is to train up and teach and lead others. That's why Pastor Jeremy spends all of his time on how to do that better. That's why Pastor Nathan's coming to try to help us in those processes that's why we partner with others to do it because we can't do it alone. We see that in Moses. But what I want to say also is I don't believe, I think that's an important point in our passage. I don't believe that's the only point here. In fact, I don't even know if that's the main point. The main point that's going on here is it is God that rules his people. That God is not only savior, but he's also judge, right? And in fact, the fact that God is judge is what ultimately qualifies him as savior. It's why he can do that because he knows what it takes for us to be declared not guilty. And he is willing and able to accomplish that for us through the work of Jesus Christ. I, I'm going back to sitcoms. I was raised on them. And so right now there's several shows that if I see on my little TV, I don't ever pass them up. One of them is always, and I'll say this, I mean this with all my heart, the Andy Griffith Show. And you recognize the hilarity of the fact that when Andy writes a citation to somebody and they come in with a complaint, he turns his little thing around and he becomes from sheriff to justice of the peace. Y'all see? And that's funny because the very one who wrote the citation you're complaining against is the one you got to argue against, right? In that sense, it doesn't make sense. It seems funny. But when it comes to the Lord, the fact that the Lord God Almighty is the one who judges us, finally and completely. He's the one who has say over our life and our death. He's the one who judges us. And at the same time, he's the one who saves us. He's the just and the justifier. At the same time, he's the one who saves us. And so today, we can have confidence that our salvation is sure that we are not guilty before him because the very one we have to answer to is the one who came to save us and redeem us and to qualify us to be a part of his work. But in that same sense, 
we must not forget that there's judgments to be made all the time. We, 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 we look in the Bible and we like passages that help us kind of argue for ourselves. Things like, do not judge. We throw that out there a lot, don't we? Do not judge. But then the very next verse, y'all know what the next verse says? Don't cast your pearls before swine. I got to make a judgment about which one of y'all are pigs. Y'all see what I'm saying? The judge, when he says do not judge, what he means there is that none of us, none of us have the privilege to judge people into heaven and hell. That's God's work and God's work alone. But we make judgments all the time and we must make those judgments based upon the word of God and how we act and how we live and how we Give out the gospel to others. We make those kind of judgments constantly. Y'all make judgments every day. You make judgments about whether or not you're going to stop at McDonald's or you're going to stop at the Popeye's. Y'all see what I'm saying? You make those judgments, but we make even deeper judgments than that all the time. So to say we don't judge is not exactly what that means. We can't judge people to heaven and hell. That's God's work. But we make judgments. And that's what you see in this passage. And those judgments that we do make every day must be based upon God's word and what God has called us to do. Why this moves us forward is because if Moses is going to multiply himself with what God demands and what God's law is, Moses is going to have to, or the Lord is going to have to put his law down on paper or in some sense a rock. He's going to have to say, here's what it is. Here's the standard. If you're going to say, here's God's law and here's what it is and here's what we're living by, what's got to happen is now the Lord has got to codify that. He told it to multiply. He says, here's, here's, here it is. Here's the laws that we judge by. And so as this moves us forward, what's the very next passage? They get to Mount Sinai. And at Mount Sinai, God delivers his Ten Commandments. And after he delivers his Ten Commandments, which are the standard ten, then in chapter 21, he's going to go through case law. Here's what happened if this goes on. Here's what you do if this happens. Here's what you do if this happens. So not only is he going to put the standard with the ten, he's going to tell them, here's how you handle certain cases, certain principles to live by. So in Exodus, he's not just saying you, you, you're going to, to have to multiply yourself and you're going to have to make other judges over people, Moses, you're going to have to train them up. He's also going to give them his law so that it becomes standard for them as they teach and train others. That's what we see in the next section of the book. But here's why I love God's word. And I'll close with this. It's because for us today, we still have to live by God's law. Y'all know that, right? We still have to live by it. Not, and we'll get to this, not in order for us to be redeemed, but because we have been redeemed. And that's exactly what happens here as we look at Exodus. He gets to chapter 20 and he says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Now you shall have no other gods before me. In other words, I've already saved you. Now it's here. here's how you live. And for all of us, we're thinking, well, I want to know. I mean, like, how do I know God's word and how do I know his law? You may be a little bit skeptical tonight going, I may not know this. How do I know this? How do I live? If I don't, who's my judge over me? Well, turn with me real quick to Jeremiah chapter 31. Because Jeremiah 31, already we've established in December looking at Jeremiah 31, 15 with the voice of Rama crying in the wilderness. We've already established that Jeremiah is one of the gloomiest of prophets. It's a sad book because it's God's people have left him. But in that gloomy sadness, if you will, you've got this one great chapter of hope, Jeremiah 31. And in Jeremiah 31, you have a famous passage there starting in verse 31. Helps you remember it. 31, 31. And what the Lord says is there's coming a day. There's coming a day. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand, bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke... 
that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. Now, that's giving y'all a little bit of head start on what happens next, right? But he's saying, this is different even. I'm going to make a new covenant different from the one I made at Sinai when I brought him out. And he says what? For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God. They shall be my people. I no longer shall, uh, and no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. In other words, the Lord is saying, I'm making a new covenant and the law is not going to be on stone tablets that you've got to learn and memorize. This law is going to be written on each and every heart of my people. You're going to know it. You say, well, how do I live? You're going to know the law. The Spirit of God is going to come and dwell within us in such a way that you know what God calls us to do. You have a desire to follow him. Every one of us now will know God's law and his word if you're a child of God. He'll write it on your hearts, he says. And so while we have leaders and we multiply ourselves to do the ministry and work of God, we don't necessarily, y'all know how Paul says, when it comes to love, I don't have anything to teach you. Because if you're a child of God, you know what love is. When it comes to these things as believers, there's certain things when we come to God that, that we know. We know the love of God. We know the power of God. We know his testimony, his faithfulness, his goodness. We know all of that. Now, we may not know all we know, but we know all of that. Why? Because that's written on our hearts. And we know what God calls us to do. And the convictions we live by through his word and the power of the spirit are engraved even in our hearts. That's why he says, I'm going to rip out that old heart and give you a new one. And that is... That becomes the testimony of us who believe today. Not that we have to go to the judge and say, what am I supposed to do? But we go to Christ, Savior and Lord, and through the power of his spirit and his word, we know what God calls us to do. We know what he calls us to do. And I, in this sense then, we see how God has multiplied himself into the hearts of his people. Chapter 18 of Exodus becomes this hinge looking back to God's faithfulness in his words and now looking forward to him as his king and ruler of his people becomes this hinge as we look to Sinai. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the kindness you have given us in giving us your word. I ask you now, uh, even as I think about Pastor Stephen over, overseas now and just as he was sharing how he's been sharing the gospel with different people and encouraging them in the faith, may they there through his testimony and the work of our missionaries even there, may those people hear the excellencies and glories and power of the name of God and know him for who he is and what he's done. Father, thank you for your kindness in allowing us the privilege to do your work by your grace. Help us to do it all the more every day for your glory and in your name we pray, amen. Thank y'all so much. We'll see y'all Sunday morning.